Hello, and welcome to Expect More of Law, the podcast. I'm Professor Tanya Lehman, Dean of Law at Flinders University, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast celebrating law at Flinders University. In this podcast series, I'll be presenting inspirational interviews with current students and graduates who share their experiences about where their law studies have taken them across the spectrum of legal professions and industries. We'll take a deep dive into the current challenges faced by legal practitioners and present industry insights into the future of law. I hope these fearless voices inform and inspire you just as they have me. Hello everybody, my name is Tanya Lehman, I'm the Dean of Law here at Flinders and I'm delighted to be having the next in my series of conversations uh, with former Flinders Law students and today I have the pleasure to be joined by Anthony Allen. Anthony, would you like to introduce yourself please? My name's Anthony Allen, I'm a graduate of Flinders, I graduated in 1999, started in 1994, was still a practising lawyer until January this year when I was appointed to the District Court of South Australia. Excellent, and you are our first uh, Flinders Law graduate who's been appointed to the judiciary at that level. It's a, a, a nice personal thing for me to have achieved that because I really enjoyed my time here and I know that everything that I was taught here has helped me get where I am now. So I want you to turn back the clock now and I want to take you right back to those decision moments. What led you to decide to study law initially? Um, My older brother is a practicing lawyer. He's 13 years older than me and I always looked up to him a lot as a little kid. Um, When he'd come home for dinner, he'd talk about the exciting cases that he'd had during the week, during the month. And it was always really interesting for me to hear those stories. And I thought that it was a fabulous, uh, if not somewhat perhaps dramatic job. And I always wanted to be a lawyer having heard his stories from quite a young age. Ah, excellent. So can you give us any highlights of your time studying here at Flinders? The biggest highlight for me generally were Um, my friends that I studied with. We had an excellent year in my cohort. I think there are only about 90 of us. And generally speaking, everyone got along really well. They were very supportive. And I've still got a lot of very good friends today that I had here uh, over 20 years ago. So that was really the highlight for me was the people which included a couple of really quite inspirational teachers as well. But my time here was one that I have very fond memories of. And you've had a career journey that's taken you to be the first in a number of things in terms of Flinders graduates. So would you be able to give us a brief overview of what's happened to you since you've graduated in the law? So while I was here, I was working as a law clerk at my brother's firm. So I was lucky to have some hands-on experience as well as the tertiary experience that I was having here. Then I went to become a public defender with the Legal Services Commission here in South Australia. I worked part of that time at Christie's Beach in a regional office, which was often quite challenging. And after a stint with the Legal Services Commission, I went to be a Crown Prosecutor. So I swapped sides Mm -hmm. working at the office of the DPP. And again, that was really very interesting work. After a period of time there, I went into private practice with a firm that specialises in criminal matters, Mangan Iron Associates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, I decided to join the independent bar as a barrister 
specialising mainly in criminal and disciplinary matters. So while I was a legal practitioner, I had both sides of the bar table, both in a public capacity and in, in a private capacity. Uh, and I felt that that, together with what I learned here, really set a good solid foundation for me to become a barrister. It all, I was very fortunate. It all seemed to work out pretty well for me. So thinking through that journey, what did you find most intellectually stimulating or challenging as part of that? It was all very challenging and stimulating because there's another judge who's a friend of mine when I was still a practitioner said, it never gets any easier because the more experienced you become, the more difficult the work is. So it's almost like a commensurate increase in the difficulty of work. So I look back now and think, well, doing my first bail application for someone in the Christie's Beach Magistrates Court, that was really challenging. And then towards the end of my career, it was defending people who were charged with murder or often doing complex appeals, including at the High Court. So there was always exciting, stimulating and challenging work all the way through because it's true, you do get more difficult work the more experienced you are. And you were one of the first two Flinders Law graduates to uh, become senior counsel. Right, that's right. Uh, when was that? So that was uh, in 2000, in the year 2000. And I know that Jane Abbey has just been appointed senior counsel as well. Yes. She's a friend of mine who um, was in the chambers that I practiced in. So that was a nice experience for me. I was overwhelmed that the Supreme Court would bestow that sort of honour on me. And it was one when I became senior counsel, my mum then said, well, does that mean that you'll be Queen's counsel one day? <laughs> Not quite <laughs> understanding that, that it's the same thing, but anyway. And of course, now uh, with the death of Queen Elizabeth, you've become, you, you would have been King counsel, King's counsel. That's right. Mm. So some people are having a bit of an identity crisis at the moment, so I hear. I was extremely honoured to have been appointed silk and something that I'll always have fond memories of as well. So before we come to your time on the bench, thinking back, your time as an advocate, your time at the bar, are there any cases that you were involved in that really stand out to you for any particular reason? There are a couple in particular. There was a case that I did recently where I was junior counsel to David Edwardson, now KC, um, where we defended Constable Zachary Rolfe um, in the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory. That was a reasonably high-profile case with a police officer charged with the murder of an Indigenous teenager. And that had a lot of complexities to it, not just legal complexities, but social complexities as well. Mm. And in the end, the accused was acquitted. There's currently now coronial inquest underway in relation to all of the background matters. But that was certainly something that was really very memorable, something that I don't think that I'll ever forget. So that was one. Um, I had a lot of involvement with the Ironside matters that are currently proceeding, so I won't say too much no, about them. No, But the technology in that's fascinating. And then there have been a lot of very sad cases that I've been involved in where really there have been no winners and you don't necessarily remember individual cases, but you know that the legal system can be very challenging for everyone involved, not just for a victim or a witness or an accused, but also for the, the lawyers and judicial officers involved, not forgetting jurors. Thinking of studying law? Expect more. More focus on your future. More support. 
more skills and more professional placements. Expect more of law. Apply to Flinders today. So how do you manage it, those impacts? Because uh, I'm sure there are things that, that impact you well after you've left that client behind or you've walked out of the courtroom at the end of the day. What strategies do you have in place to manage some of those things? The strategy that I've always employed and the strategy that a lot of my colleagues at the criminal bar or in criminal practice employ is one of collegiality. Mm-hmm. So we all have to be dealing with similar subject matter. So we say we get used to it. I don't think we ever really do. Yes. But it's through having other people that are going through the same experience with you and being able to debrief and discuss with them often works very well. I know that at the moment there's an emerging thought that something more formal needs to be done in terms of recognising vicarious trauma. Mm. That's something that the Courts Administration Authority here is dealing with and really something that I think is very important because often it's a lot of very young lawyers or even trainees, so the associates we have at the district court who have just finished law school are exposed to the most horrific sorts of images now with child exploitation material or hearing about the trauma of people in court and there's really nothing in place Mm. in terms of thorough formal processes. So I think that's something that's worth doing but I've always said it's good to speak to your mates about it Mm. I'm lucky that my wife is also a criminal barrister, so I get to speak with her at home about things. Mm. So mm. I, I guess I'm in a, uh, a very fortunate position. I'm really interested to hear you mention vicarious trauma there because uh, we now give our students a brief presentation on vicarious trauma and vicarious resilience to prepare them for undertaking their placement because I think there's so much more work being done on that space in the legal profession these days. That's an excellent initiative. I think that it's something that as a young practitioner, I struggled with a little bit. I had a couple of really bad cases, one that involved a man murdering his two and a half year old son. Oh dear. And having to deal with him as a, I think a mid-20s lawyer, having to go and speak with him at Yatler about what he had done. And he spoke quite candidly about it, almost in a disconnected way. Mm. And, and I still remember that conversation. So that's obviously had an impact on me. Yes. So if I'd yes. had some resilience training, that might have helped. But I think that it's something that we, sorry, institutions have an institutional duty to do something about it. And I think we as individuals really have to acknowledge that something we have to deal with. Mm. So many uh, people, when they think about what a barrister does, have a picture of someone who's in court all the time. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? There's a lot of work behind the scenes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. And again, I, I speak from my background as a criminal law practitioner. So my practice at the bar was very heavily loaded towards being in court. But I have colleagues who practice uh, in commercial law who would spend a lot less time in court, more time in their office writing opinions and providing advice. So it really depends on the type of law that you do. But then there's also within the criminal field, really a specialty of appellate barristers. So they might might not be grinding out trials day in, day out. 
they might have a really big appeal. So I've got a friend who's got an appeal coming up in the High Court. It's a significant matter that may change the way that extended joint enterprise works in this country. And so I know that that takes probably 20 or 30 days out of court to get ready for one day in court. Mm. So it's, mm. it really depends on the type of practice that you have. But I, I must say that I always enjoyed the drama of being in court. But in order to be able to do that, you have to spend a lot of time after hours and on weekends to get ready to be in court. So it's not just about turning up and dazzling everyone with brilliant language and being a great actor. It's actually about making sure that you're prepared to make the points you need to make. And I was just going to ask you, what are the three key top skills that you think a really successful criminal barrister needs? I think one is an ability to communicate well with a broad range of people. I find that that's really, really important. So as a criminal lawyer, you're dealing with people who have had, in some cases, terribly unfortunate lives. Mm. Some might mm. say that you know, they, they never stood a chance in life because of what happened to them from a very young age, mm. circumstances beyond their control, and they probably don't want um, someone using very fancy or sophisticated language um, that's delivered to them in a manner where they're being spoken down to rather than involved in a discussion with. Mm. And then you could also be dealing with, I used to act for specialist medical practitioners when they got in trouble with their regulator. So you need to be able to communicate with them on a more sophisticated level. And then of course you've got um, so that's about understanding your audience, yeah, isn't it? Your, it, it the, is. the client or the or the tribunal that you're advocating to. That's right. And then, of course, I, I predominantly had a jury trial practice. So then you've got to try and work out, well, how am I going to pitch my case mm. to these 12 people that you've never met before? And the only things that you know about them are their occupation, the suburb they live in, their gender, and what you see their reaction might be along the way in court. So I think, so the first one's effective communication, no question about that. Second one, and along with that has to be some empathy. Mm. I just don't think that you can treat, you, you have to be calm and dispassionate, but you, you have to be able to have some sort of emotional connection to the person that you're speaking with, because that's when people listen. Thank you for listening to Expect More of Law, the podcast. If you've been inspired, influenced, informed or entertained, please subscribe to the podcast series. To find out more about Flinders Law, please visit flinders.edu.au slash law.